welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 2. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of the Awakening Supernatural Thriller series and the QC Davis Mysteries and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Today we're talking about Season 2, Episode 14, Innocence. It is the second half of a two-part episode that began in Surprise, which I talked about last Monday. For Innocence, we'll talk about how where a scene takes place affects the characters and the emotional resonance of the story, making the audience love your characters, why writing yourself into a corner sometimes can be a great thing, and how this episode incorporates a heart-wrenching subplot in the midst of an epic main plot. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Innocence was written and directed by Joss Whedon. There also is a scene-by-scene commentary on the DVD edition done by Whedon, and there is a very short interview with him as well. Because this is the second part of a two-part story, we have already covered the opening conflict, the story spark or inciting incident, and the one-quarter twist. We stopped at that midpoint commitment by Buffy, our protagonist, where she and Angel throw caution to the wind and make love after that harrowing experience with the judge. We also hinted at a major reversal for Buffy at the midpoint where Angel is out in the alley gasping Buffy's name in terrible pain. This episode, Innocence, does start with its own opening conflict. Because we don't start right in the alley with Angel, we start in the factory with Drusilla and Spike. Immediately we get some tension and conflict. Spike says, I'm not happy, Pat. And he goes on to say that Angel and the Slayer are still alive, plus they know where Spike and Drusilla are, and they know about the judge. So Spike thinks that they should vacate the factory. Drusilla disagrees. She says, nonsense. That Angel and the Slayer won't bother them at the factory or come back. And she says, my Angel is too smart. So interesting when she is opposing Spike. Spike also complains about the judge calling him Big Blue and says all he's doing is just sitting there not doing anything. Spike wants to know when can they go out and end some lives. All of this dialogue gets in some quick exposition, catches the audience up on much of the plot from the last episode. It ends with a hook as Drusilla cries out and falls on the floor as if she is in pain. She says Angel's name and a second later she smiles. We fade to Buffy. She is asleep in Angel's bed. She opens her eyes, hears the rain falling, and sees she is alone. Thunder claps as she looks around and says, Angel? Out in the alley, we are back where we ended the last episode. Angel has fallen on the pavement and says, Buffy, a woman in a leather coat who was smoking in a doorway, comes over to ask if he's all right. He stands suddenly and says, yes. 
The pain is gone now. He turns and bites her, then lets her go and exhales smoke. He is in vamp face and he says, I feel just fine. That is two minutes, 40 seconds in and we go to credits. This is that total reversal for Buffy. Angel has become evil. And I also see it as a story spark or inciting incident. What gets our main plot rolling for this episode is Angel changing. So we will see these major plot points within this episode and we'll see them interplaying with the two episode story arc. And that is part of what keeps these two episodes moving so well. After the credits, Buffy comes into the back door at home. It's a sunny day. Joyce comes out from another room and says, so did you have fun last night? And we see this momentary panic on Buffy's face. She says, fun. And Joyce says, at Willow's. Because last night, uh, Buffy and Xander and Willow all called their parents and told them they were staying at one of the other's houses. Buffy covers. She's a little awkward, but says yes. And Joyce asks, her if something is wrong and Buffy says no and Joyce says I don't know you just look and she shakes her head and leaves at the library Xander enters and he says the bus depot um, he had no luck there finding any parts of the judge coming in this catches us up on what our friends were doing in the last episode at the end of it Jenny and Willow look somber and Giles tells Xander that Buffy and Angel never checked in the night before, and this means the judge is very likely operational. Xander says they need to go and try to help Buffy and Angel go to the factory, but Cordelia says, and do what, except be afraid and die? Xander tells her no one's asking her to go, but Giles says she may have a point. If Buffy and Angel couldn't stand against the judge were hurt, the others don't have much chance. Willow agrees with Xander and thinks the others are being terrible, and they both head toward the door. But Buffy walks in. Xander says, we were just going to rescue you. And Willow, with a sidelong look at the others, says, well, some of us were. Buffy tells him the judge is assembled. She's very upset to hear that Angel didn't check in with the others. She tells them that she and Angel had to hide. They were stuck in the sewer tunnels, and that's why they didn't call. Willow reassures her, saying she's sure Angel will come by. Giles asks about the judge, and she says she kicked him. She barely touched him, but it burned. And Giles says eventually the judge will be able to reduce humans to charcoal with a look. Willow and Buffy talk. Willow is worried that Angel went after the judge. And Buffy says, no, maybe Angel just needed. And she breaks off and says she just wishes he'd contact her. She needs to talk to him. This is as they are walking in the hall, and as they head up the stairs, Jenny comes around the corner, clearly having been listening. In the commentary, uh, Joss Whedon noted that there was another scene right here that got cut where Buffy sat in class and remembered the sex with Angel from the night before. Joss said it was uh, very surreal and arty and it got cut mainly for time and because it really didn't add to the narrative. But he also commented, um, he said, when he tries to actually be artistic, I tend to confuse people. 
that it's better when he just tells the story. Uh, this reminded me of the distinction between literary fiction and writing and commercial and genre fiction. It's not really a bright line. I've best heard it described as a sort of continuum. And at the literary extreme, it is all about the writing and the style of the writing and the beauty of it and the art of the writing itself. At the other end, it is all about the plot and the story. Not that many stories fall at one end or the other, but people do tend to like things that lean a certain way. Some people love the beauty of the writing. Some people just want the story. And that is the main distinction between literary and commercial fiction. Or I like to think of it more as plot-based fiction. Uh, and I found it interesting because I think Joss Whedon's stories are so amazing. And I love the elements of his writing, the dialogue, uh, the characterization. But all of those really go to the story story more than the style because his his dialogue is amazing and yet it always serves the story it is rarely there just to be good dialogue so I found it interesting that he said when he tried to do this very artistic scene that was all about how it was shot and doing something interesting artistically he ended up cutting it and feeling like it didn't work because it didn't move the story and it confused people we switch to the factory. We're about seven minutes in now. Drusilla is lying on her back on a table, dreamily naming all the stars, even though she's inside. Spike asks if she has seen any more. What happens to Angel? A sarcastic voice comes from behind Spike as Angel, now Angelus, walks in. And in answer to Spike's question to Drew, Angelus says, well, he moves to New York and tries to fulfill his bride. Broadway dream and goes on with this story about what happens to Angel. Joss said the idea of Spike and Drusilla as villains was to get the villains more incorporated into the real lives of the characters because in season one the master was always a separate villain. We saw him completely separate from our usual cast of characters and here Spike and Drew and Angel now are all going to be incorporated into our characters lives as Spike and Drew already have been. He also also loved the triangle idea of Spike, Drew, and Angel because it shows vampires as more complex than before. In this scene, Spike doesn't realize yet Angel has changed, even though Angel makes fun of Spike rolling through the streets on his wheelchair and is so sarcastic in a way that we have never seen Angel be. And Spike tells Angel to look over his shoulder. He points to the judge, and the judge touches Angel, and nothing happens. And Spike says something like, what are you doing? Just burn him. And Angel says, gee, maybe he's broken. And the judge says Angel is clean. There's no humanity in him. And Joss said this was a way to show uh, the audience that Angel really had gone bad. He was not faking it. There wasn't some, I don't know, ulterior plot of Angel to pretend to be bad, which is also why they had Angel kill someone in that scene before the credits, the teaser. He did not want the audience to have any question. So once the judge has said this, the we get a commercial break. And we come back. Spike now is happy. He says to Angel, no more of this I've got a soul crap. 
And he's laughing, and Drew is dancing, and Spike says it made him sick to see Angel as the Slayer's lapdog. Angel growls at Spike and lunges at him, but then he kisses him on the head. Spike says, now it's four against one, which is the kind of odds I like to play. Angel, though, is not ready to end the world yet. When they tell him of their plan with a judge, he says, give him a night. He needs to go after the Slayer first, and he guarantees she won't be anything resembling a threat after he's done with her. Back at the library, Willow is on the phone with Buffy, trying to reassure her that Angel must have a plan. That's why he's missing, and he's not dead. The others are going through all of the books looking for answers about the judge. In the stacks, Cordelia is looking through a book and Xander asks if she's found anything. She says, no weapon forged, it takes an army to take him down, all the same things. Xander apologizes for snapping at her when she didn't want to go after Buffy. And she says, well, I'm reeling from that new experience. She also says he was all ready to rush out and die for his beloved Buffy. Buffy, and he'd never die for her. He says he might die from her. Does that get him any points? When she says no, he says, come on, can't we just kiss and make up? And she says, I don't want to make up. She smiles, though, and says, but I'm okay with the other part. And they kiss. In the commentary, Joss said one of his favorite things on the show is the changing relationships. And the idea of Cordelia falling for Xander was a perfect sort of romance because they are so wrong for each other. And he really liked developing Cordelia, who was kind of just the mean girl in season one. And now she is showing real vulnerability. He also said that there is nothing more painful in the world than when Allison Hannigan does her big eye which happens in a second when Cordelia and Xander are kissing they break apart and we see Willow standing there at the end of the row of books and just looking stricken Xander runs after her Cordelia looks upset I feel like she feels for Willow Willow runs out in the hall and Xander follows her I love also that in the midst of this huge turmoil for Buffy and Angel the judge planning to end the world we get this subplot with Willow and Xander and I think that it works so well without distracting or slowing the momentum of the main plot for a couple reasons one is we love Willow so much and we feel so much for her in this circumstance. The other is, as we'll see, it is always intertwined with the main plot. Here, Cordelia and Xander didn't just randomly argue. He snapped at her over, um, they all thought Buffy and Angel might be dead or, or hurt and Xander wanted to go after her despite that it probably would have been a foolish thing to do. Then, in the stacks, they're researching to try to figure out what's going on with the judge Willow is probably coming back there also to get more books and she sees this out in the hall we have some uh, fantastic dialogue Willow saying I knew it I knew it well not knew it in the sense of having the slightest idea but I knew there was something I didn't know you two were fighting way too much it's not natural and Xander says I know it's weird and Willow says weird it's against all laws of God and man it's Cordelia remember the we hate Cordelia Club of which you are the treasurer. 
Xander says he was going to tell her, and she says, gee, what stopped you? Could it be shame? And Xander tells her she's overreacting and then says a line that leads to the most heartbreaking thing from Willow. Xander says, we were just kissing. It didn't mean that much. And now Willow, who had been yelling at him, her voice is soft and it breaks, and she says, no, just that you'd rather be with someone you hate than be with me. And she runs out and Xander looks after her, just looking helpless. We got this beautiful plaintive music and it carries over into the next scene where Buffy is walking toward her house. She stops in front of it and then turns away and heads to Angel's apartment. And this is another example. If you remember back when I talked about nightmares, the scene with Buffy and her dad, where every line just escalates this conflict and emotional pain when you didn't think that it could get any worse the the writers just keep turning it up again and again and here um, Buffy in Angel's apartment it seems like it's deserted she walks toward the bed and sees his shirt lying there so she knows that that he has been back this doesn't look the way it did when she left so she is already distraught and he walks out behind her um, shirtless and she hears him and turns and runs and hugs him and says Angel oh my god he does hug her back and he says he's sorry and he sort of sounds like himself he's saying he didn't mean to frighten her at the same time he's not quite himself because he acts like he's surprised that she's upset or that she was worried and this adds to Buffy's unease like she should feel better because here Angel is and yet he's he's kind of acting very odd like it's no no big deal which he will say and she says you just disappeared and he says what I took off and his casualness then she meets with more intensity she says but you didn't say anything you just left and he starts putting his shirt back on and says yeah like I really wanted to stick around after that and Buffy says what and we can see in her face she she just can barely comprehend what he is saying and he calls her kiddo and says she has a lot to learn about men but he guesses she proved that last night and all of this is just as he is casually buttoning up his shirt Buffy looks devastated and says what are you saying and he tells her let's not make an issue of it uh, let's not talk about it at all and he puts his coat on all of his actions underscore his his tone and his words which are so dismissive and casual it's like he's putting on his clothes and he can't even bother to stop what he's doing and really look at her and focus on her at the same time it's so very intimate at act of getting dressed in front of her Buffy is trying to process this and she says was it me was I not good I feel like it just it just keeps getting more horrible because he chuckles and he says oh she was great really says I thought you were a pro a tone we have never heard him use with her and she says how can you say this to me and he tells her to lighten up it was a good time it doesn't have to be a big deal and when she says it is a big deal again ratchets up the emotional pain and the awfulness and he says it's what 
bells ringing, fireworks, a dulcet choir, or pretty little birdies. And he giggles when he says this. And that is somehow even more unnerving, like angel giggling. And he says, come on, Buffy. It's not like I've never been there before. And he moves his hand toward her face like he's going to like tap her nose or chuck her under the chin or something like a little girl. And she jerks away and says in this low voice that's almost a whisper, don't touch me. And he kind of points his finger at her and says he should have known she wouldn't be able to handle it. And he heads for the door and she says, angel. And he turns toward her with this awful grin and she says again almost in a whisper I love you and it's that that desperate like how can this be happening even though he's just said these terrible things she wants to bring him back to where they were last night he does worse than not responding he says love you too and he points his finger toward her as he says it just making this joke of it and mocking her and he turns and walks out the door opens it And before leaving, adds that final terrible thing, I'll call you, and walks out. And we can see from his profile, we can't quite see his eyes rolling, but the way his expression is, we know that's what he's doing. And he shuts the door. And Buffy's face, she swallows hard and and she starts to cry. This is so devastating because we know, it's dramatic irony, we know that Angel has, has been turned, but Buffy doesn't. And to her it is this man that she loved rejecting her and this lovemaking that mattered so much to her and she thought was this deep connection. We even saw all that wedding imagery and the exchange of rings and it doesn't matter to him at all and worse than not mattering it's a joke. He's he's making fun of her This is like 15 minutes, 30 seconds in. This is almost a one-quarter turn for Buffy's personal story in this episode. It comes from outside of her, outside the protagonist, and sends the story in a totally new direction where um, she has to deal with this emotional loss. Really interesting in the commentary, Joss said that initially they he wrote the scene and they shot the scene with Buffy running into Angel at her house. And he said it, it wasn't working, that it was in the wrong place, that you needed to see them in Angel's bedroom. It needed to be intimate. You needed to see him with his shirt off instead of the two characters in coats. He said woolly coats standing outside. And he said it showed he had a lot to learn as a writer and a director. And when they shot it again, it worked amazingly, as we see. And while when we're writing a novel or a short story, we don't have actors playing the part, we do have the characters, and it's a good lesson. If a scene is not working, your dialogue, your conflict, you're not getting the emotion you want, it is worth looking at, is that scene in the right place have you used the setting to the greatest emotional impact and and maybe that's a better question not that there is a right place although that particular scene I think there was a right place and that was it I don't know that all scenes have that one perfect place but to look and say is this the setting that is going to bring out the most emotion, the most of the character's feelings, can make a huge, huge difference. Back to Joss, he also said he felt like an ugly person writing this scene because he could make Angel say these terrible 
things. And I think that goes to the idea, you know, how do you as a writer write things that maybe you don't want to write or write a character who is is mean and you're not mean or I had a friend who kept saying, you know, she had a genius character. She's like, how do I write a genius? I'm not a genius. Or funny, you know, character who's really witty and funny if you aren't the kind of person who just pops off one-liners. All of those things, the advantage you have, you're the writer. You have time. So it can take you 15 minutes to figure out that next horrible mean line or that next very funny line or something amazing this character, this deduction the character makes. It might take you 15 minutes to figure it out. It might take you an hour. But on the page, the character comes out with it immediately. So it may take you longer to create a character who is not who you are or who is ramped up from what you would ever ever do or say but on the page that thinking you did that time that you took doesn't show so to the reader this is just this character being who the character is in terms of emotional resonance Joss said he thought this scene with Buffy and Angel was the best scene that they had ever done on the show we then switch to Jenny and her uncle and for different reasons Joss says this is a scene that he loved because he had to solve so many problems with it so we have Jenny saying to her uncle she couldn't keep Angel from Buffy and she argues that Angel could help them stop the judge that he might be the only chance but the uncle tells her it's too late and he explains the curse he says Angel was meant to suffer, not to live as human. One moment of true happiness, of contentment. One moment where the soul that we restored no longer plagues his thought, and that soul is taken from him. And Jenny realizes that if that happened, that means Angelus is back. And the uncle says, yes, he hoped to stop it, but he realizes now it was all arranged to be part of the plan. Jenny says, but Buffy loves him. And the uncle says, now she'll have to kill him. And Jenny says, unless Angel kills Buffy first, that it's insanity and people will die. And the uncle has previously said, you know, vengeance is a living thing. And now he says, yes, it is not justice we serve. It is vengeance. I love this quote. I saw this whole thing as part of the theme of the episode and a real comment on the idea of vengeance, how when we want revenge, how twisted it can become and how vengeance and justice are not the same. I've always loved and admired that quote. And it turns out it came from necessity because Joss said he had some serious problems in terms of the Jenny storyline. Um, He said Jenny had never really done anything, which is true. She was sent there to supposedly watch Angel, but she hadn't really done anything. And he said that was partly because they didn't decide that Jenny would be part of this clan until later. So they, they didn't have anything that she had done that made sense. He also said the whole curse doesn't make sense. It's a terrible plan to have Angel's soul be yanked away the moment he is truly happy. So they had pretty much written themselves into a corner and And Joss said luckily he had experience dealing with that kind of thing because he worked for a long time as a script doctor and one thing you do is to get handed a script and there are elements that the producers or directors love but there are things that just aren't working and it's the script doctor's job to make those work to make 
elements that do not fit or things that are not um, built in somehow work. So he took a walk along the Santa Monica Pier and he was desperately trying to connect up all these things, this curse. Why would Angel lose his soul? It doesn't make any sense. And he came up with that idea of vengeance as this living thing, this sort of arbitrary God. I just love that because of those problems, this wonderful commentary came out of it, this theme that really does hold it together. And this is a great example of what I talked about last Monday, where when you do your world building sort of as you need it on the fly, sometimes you get to this place where you don't know what to do, but it almost, I think, forces a sort of creativity and sometimes makes you come up with something really powerful. Back at the school, Willow comes back. She's walking very slowly. We just see from her body language how bad she still feels. And Xander is out in the hall and he says he's glad she came back. They can't do it without her. And we get a great quote from Willow that really shows how mature she is and how emotionally aware because she's able to say how she feels feels and yet be there to help and continue being friends with Sander. And she says, let's get this straight. I don't understand it. I don't want to understand it. You have gross emotional problems and things are not okay between us. But what's happening now, right now, is more important than that. And Xander nods and he says, okay. And Willow asks where they stand about the judge. So right here, what's going to happen is a great example of how this Willow-Xander subplot is woven into the main plot so it doesn't stop it in its tracks so that we go to one side to deal with Willow and Xander. It is part of it because Xander answers Willow and says, you know, they're where they were when she left. No weapon forged. It took an army. And Willow says, yeah, where's an army when you need one? And Xander has an idea. But we don't find out yet what it is because the lights go out. They start to head for the library, but Angel calls their names. He's standing near the exit in the dark so they don't see his face. Willow asks if he saw Buffy and he says, yeah. And he sounds like himself. He says he has something to show them and tells Xander to go get the others. Willow walks slowly toward Angel asking what it is and he says it's amazing and something in his tone makes Xander turn around. Jenny comes out of the library with a cross and tells Willow to get away from Angel and walk to her but it's too late. Angel grabs Willow from behind. Jenny says he's not Angel anymore and Angel says wrong. I am Angel at last and he he says he has a message for Buffy. From behind him, Buffy says he should give it to her himself. And he spins around, still gripping Willow by the throat, and says it's not the kind of message he can say. It involves her finding the dead bodies of all her friends. Buffy tries to say that some part of him must remember who he is. And he says, dream on, schoolgirl. Your boyfriend's dead. As he's talking to Buffy, Xander takes the cross from Jenny and creeps up behind Angel. Buffy is telling him to leave Willow alone and deal with her, and Xander thrusts the cross at Angel, surprising him, and he reflexively jerks away and throws Willow to the side. Then he grabs Buffy by the shoulders and says things are about to get very interesting, kisses her, and flings her against the wall and stalks out. This is nearly the episode midpoint, and it seems like a major reversal 
for Buffy, but it gets worse. So I think that midpoint is still coming. We are also coming up to the three-quarter plot turn for the entire story arc. But first, we cut to a commercial. First, I want to say thank you to patrons. I so appreciate your support. If you would like to join them, you can find a link in the show notes and you will get access to the breakdown of Jessica Jones, the pilot episode. Also, if you would find it helpful to have a little more guidance with how to apply these points specifically when writing a novel, you may want to check out The One-Year Novelist, A Quick Guide to Plotting and Writing Your Novel in One Year. And I should have made that in one year or less. It is very adaptable. If you have already done your plot, you can skip right to the writing part. If you have more time to write, you can accelerate the process. Or if your life is not predictable, so that you can write the same amount every day or every week, you can adapt the schedule that way as well. It is meant to be very flexible because uh, I have written novels during both times in my life, times when I had a nine-to-five job and times when I had a job where there was never an hour that I could truly be sure that I would not be working. we are back in the library. Giles is leaning toward blind panic. It was enough with the judge. He wasn't prepared for Angel crossing over. Willow asks if Buffy's okay and she shakes her head and says she should have known. She says, I saw him at the house and he was different. Um, Interesting that she says at the house. So it seems like that must have been filmed before they realized it should be in Angel's apartment. Buffy goes on to say, you know, she should have known because of the things he said and Giles says what things and Buffy says it's private and the next moment we get what I see as the three-quarter turn of the double episode arc it's about 22 minutes in so it's right about three quarters through this whole story where Giles is pushing Buffy to tell them what Angel said and what happened and he says um, if only they knew what set it off Angel's changed and Buffy says what do you mean and Giles says some event must have set it off and says if anyone would know Buffy it should be you did anything happen last night and this is that turn and that major reversal for Buffy so that episode midpoint for her because she realizes that their lovemaking somehow caused this she couldn't be more devastated um and we would have thought like nothing could get worse for Buffy first she thinks Angel is not who she thought and he's rejecting her and it's terrible emotionally then she finds out well he really is not who she thought now because he has become angelous and she has not only lost Angel but there is Angelus, this evil being, and now it is so much worse because she feels personally responsible that she is the one who did this. As Giles pushes her, she says, Giles, please, I can't, and leaves. And he calls after her, saying, like, we can't afford to be emotional at this time. And Willow says, Giles, shut up. And we see that Willow has put together what happened. And in the commentary, Joss said a couple things. One is that he loves Willow's bond with Buffy, that it is kind of transcendent. And I agree. And he also commented on a more uh, strategic thing, that when they have scenes in the library, and it's almost always 
information is coming out, exposition, and there are a number of people there, he said he goes there and walks through it and figures out exactly where everyone will be. And I think that is a great idea. Sometimes um, I don't have sets to go to, but sometimes when I am struggling with a scene, occasionally I have drawn on a piece of paper, either the room or the, the neighborhood, and I am not an artist by any means. I would not share those drawings. They're really bad line drawings. But I have done that to help me get that sense of who is there and what are they doing. Likewise, I have gone to some of those places and just sat there and looked around or taken a video of them and figured out, okay, yeah, this is the bench. This is how far it is from the Picasso sculpture. Um, this is what my character would, would really see and observe. And here are the sounds that I hear and so forth. So that can be really valuable. Cordelia says how terrible things are and she lists all the awful things ending with you know not just the judge being operational but angel turning the slayer being a basket case and she ends with I'd say we've hit bottom and then uh, some great quotes Xander says I have a plan and Cordelia says oh no here's a lower place. Xander explains that he has figured out a way to deal with the judge and he needs Cordelia's help. Back to the factory warehouse, Angel is going on about the look on Buffy's face being priceless. And when Spike says, so you didn't kill her, he says, of course not. More great quotes, Spike. I know you haven't been in the game for a while, mate, but we do still kill people. It's sort of our raison d'etre, you know. And Drusilla says, no, Angel doesn't want to kill Buffy. He wants to hurt her. Just like you hurt me, she says with a little laugh. And Angel says, no one knows me like you do, Drew. And Angel tells Spike he doesn't get it, that Spike tried to kill Buffy and look at him. And Angel laughs at Spike in the wheelchair and says, force won't do it, that to kill this girl, you have to love her. Back at home, Buffy is in her bedroom. She's looking at the cross on the necklace that Angel gave her and the ring he gave her, and she sobs and curls up on her bed. We drift to a dream. Buffy and Angel in bed, we see the rings on their hands. It is almost that artistic type of approach to a flashback to their lovemaking that Joss was talking about earlier, although it is clear what's happening, and Angel whispers, I love you. And it's very sweet. We see him touching her face, and it emphasizes for me the horribleness of how Angel treats her the next day. Then Buffy in the dream is at a grave and Angel is there in the sun and he looks at her and says you have to know what to see and she turns and sees Jenny all dressed in black pulling a veil down over her face so this is an example of a dream moving the story forward it also fills in that scene that we missed with Buffy and Angel when they are finally making love it's in a very television PG sort of way but we get that emotional moment that we we missed and saw only the aftermath of. It also moves the story because we see Buffy making this connection between Jenny and what happened. The next scene, the music changes. It becomes very intense with a driving beat and Buffy walks into school straight into Jenny's classroom. Giles is there talking to Jenny. Buffy ignores him, grabs Jenny by the throat and pins her on the desk. She then immediately lets go but says, what do you know? Giles sends the students away saying he'll deal with it and Buffy is saying, did you do it? Did you change him? Did you 
you know this is going to happen? Giles yells at Buffy, says she can't go around accusing everybody, but Jenny says, I didn't know exactly. I was told. And Giles is just shocked. And Jenny tells him she's sorry, but that Angel was supposed to pay for what he did to her people. And she tells Buffy she didn't know what would happen until after she swears she would have told Buffy. And Buffy says, so it was me. I did it. And Jenny says, I think so. And she explains about the moment of true happiness. And Giles says, I don't understand. How, how do you know you were responsible if... And Buffy just looks at him. And he looks back and takes off his glasses and says, oh. Buffy tells Jenny to curse him again. Jenny says she can't. The magics are long lost. But if she can't help, Buffy wants Jenny to take her to someone who can. We cut to the uncle. He hears the door behind him opening and says, I knew she would bring you. I suppose you want answers but it's angel and he says not really just said that he had this long scene planned where angel tortured the uncle and kind of monologued and then he cut it because he realized even before they shot it as soon as angel spoke it's over we all know what's going to happen we cut to a rainy night they're outside a military base. Willow and Oz wait in his van. In the previous scene, uh, Xander had said they needed transportation, something bigger than a car, and Willow had said, uh, no problem, Oz has a van. So she and Oz wait while Cordelia and Xander sneak in through a fence to this base. And when they're caught, Xander pretends he's a soldier on leave, bringing his girl in to impress her. He uses what he remembers from when he was a soldier on Halloween to fool the guard into thinking he really belongs there. They get into the armory. They steal something, though we don't know what. While Oz and Willow are waiting, they're talking, and Willow suddenly says, do you want to make out with me? And Oz says, what? And she says, forget it. She's sorry. But then she says, well, do you? And Oz tells her that sometimes in class he's thinking, and he says, I'm not thinking about class because that would never happen. But he thinks about kissing Willow, and he says it's like freeze frame. And he makes it sound so amazing, and she kind of looks at him expectantly, and he says, no, he's not going to kiss her. And she doesn't understand why, and we get a wonderful line from Oz. He says, well... To the casual observer, it would appear that you're trying to make your friend Xander jealous, or even the score or something. And that's on the empty side. See, in my fantasy, when I'm kissing you, you're kissing me. It's okay. I can wait. Joss Whedon said that Oz was based on someone he knew, who, who was very laid back and cool, and Joss wanted a character that was so cool that he sees how cool Willow is, even when she was hidden in that big Eskimo outfit in Inca Mummy Girl. But the audience was not loving Oz. He said they were very vocal about it. They wanted Willow with Xander because Willow is so into Xander. And he wrote this scene that makes Willow love Oz. He said Willow really falls for Oz in that moment when he explains why he isn't going to kiss her and says he can wait. And we see that in Willow's face. And because Willow falls for Oz, the audience falls for Oz. We now switch to the uncles. Buffy, Jenny, and Giles did in fact go there. Jenny runs to the body. And on the wall in blood is written, was it good for you too? Giles tells Buffy Angel is doing it deliberately to make it harder for her. And she says he's only making it easier. She knows what she has to do. Kill him. 
This is about 34 minutes in. So note that is really close to three quarters through this episode. Normally our three quarter turn grows out of the protagonist actions at the midpoint and turns the story in yet another new direction or it can grow out of a reversal and turn the story again. And so here this grows out of the reversal that Buffy suffered all of her decisions and it spins the story because now she knows she has to kill Angel. We cut to a commercial. When we get back, we're in the factory, and the judge is saying that he's ready. And Angel, more sarcasm, says to Spike, too bad you can't come with. I'll be thinking of you. And Spike gives him this look and says, I won't be in this chair forever. And this is great, not just foreshadowing, it's already developing of this triangle and this tension between Spike and Angel. We see Xander putting a large rectangular box on a table in Giles' office, and he says, happy birthday, Buffy. He hopes she likes the color. We still don't see what's inside. It looks a bit like the box the judge's arm came in at Buffy's party, though it's newer and um, it's more of a regular shape, but it's a nice echo back to that because that was Drew's birthday present, and now this is Buffy's. Jenny comes in and she wants to help and Buffy says, get out. Jenny says something to Giles and he says, she said, get out and turns his back on her. And it is so sad, but I love Giles in this moment because he puts Buffy first. They go to the factory and don't find anyone there. Spike is hiding and listening to them. And they talk about where might the judge be, that he needs bodies. And the bronze is closed. So they figure out the most people will likely be at the mall, which would have um, probably been true back then. We switch to the mall. There are people in line at a concession stand. It's sort of an open area, almost like a, a food court. Angel Drew and the judge and other vamps enter, and they are up at the top of the stairs, so on a somewhat higher level than that food court area. And the judge burns a man. Uh, it's almost like a lightning bolt comes out of his fingers, this crackling of electricity, and this man just a few feet away burns up. We are now at the climax of our two-episode story arc. It's 36 minutes, 50 seconds in. Buffy enters with her friends. Giles is carrying the box on his shoulder. We switch to the judge. Angel on one side, Drew on the other. Angel is smiling, and the judge is shooting these uh, bolts of electricity that are like zigzagging through the crowd. Just as we close up on Angel smiling, an arrow hits the judge's chest and those bolts stop and the people are okay and the judge says who dares we pan to Buffy she is standing on that counter holding a crossbow and says I think I got his attention the judge tells her she's a fool no weapon forged can stop me and Buffy says that was then she hands down her crossbow someone else hands her the rocket launcher she puts it on her shoulder and says this is now as it powers up people in the crowd are running. Drusilla and Angel look at each other and dive off that upper level to get out of the way. It's all in slow motion and the judge says what's that do? 
Buffy fires as it hits the judge. Angel and Drew hit the floor. Drew squeals and runs as pieces of the judge rain down everywhere. Angel, looking exasperated, runs the other way. I love all of this because it so fits Buffy, who is not constrained by the old rules. And so she gets this rocket launcher that didn't exist when the judge was previously dismembered. And I love that it's such an ensemble effort that everybody together researched and researched. Xander had this idea. Cordelia helped go and get it and Oz and Willow brought it back and everybody took part in this. It wasn't just the one girl in all the world. Now we are at falling action for this main part of the plot with the judge. We have to tie up the loose ends from our story and falling's a little bit literal here because Angel and Drusilla do fall with the blast. Buffy says this was her best present ever, but she says they can't be sure he's dead and tells the others to pick up the pieces and keep them separate. And Cordelia says, pieces, we get the pieces, our job sucks, but she goes off to do it. Now we have to deal with Angel. So in a way, this is part of the climax, though we started that falling action of tying up loose ends. Um, This is the climax of the Buffy and Angel part of this story because Buffy sees him leaving. He glances back and sees her, ducks into a side hallway, and she follows him toward the back in where the movie theater is. And there's no one else around. And he is, again, saying horrible things to her. He tells her the worst part was pretending to love her and says if I knew how easily you'd give it up I wouldn't have even bothered but she says it doesn't work anymore he's not angel and he says she'd like to think that but it doesn't matter the important thing is she made him the man he is today and they start fighting we switch to our friends out in the food court and Oz is uh, pointing to the ground and says arm it's funny And in the commentary, Joss said that juxtaposing these types of scenes is the most important thing. Angel and Buffy, as they fight, he continues to say these kind of intimate, awful things to her um, that could have fit with what she originally thought was happening, that Angel just did not love her and was mocking her. Although now she knows it's in jealous, it still makes it so much more than just a physical fight. She throws him into a glass case, kicks him against the wall. Uh, he is sort of cowering and she pulls out a stick and then looks at his face and even though he He has that horrible, like, mocking grin still on his face. She can't do it. She starts lowering the stake. And he says, you can't do it. You can't kill me. And she kicks him really hard in the crotch. And he groans and falls to his knees. She walks away and says, give me time. This is the climax of the Buffy and Angel plot. And now we get the falling action from that Giles drives Buffy home. He pulls up in front of her house and tells her it's not over. Angel will come after her particularly. Buffy is staring straight ahead through the windshield and she says, you must be so disappointed in me. And Giles looks at her and says, no. And she finally looks at him and he says he's not. And she says it's all her fault. And he tells her he doesn't believe it is and says, do you want me to wag my finger at you and tell you you acted rashly? You did. And I can. 
And he goes on to say, but he knows she loved Angel, and Angel proved more than once that he loved her, and she couldn't have known what would happen. And then he says, the coming months are going to be hard, I suspect on all of us, but if it's guilt you're looking for, Buffy, I'm not your man. All you will get from me is my support and my respect. And her face just crumples. The scene cuts. We see an old black and white movie um, where a couple is dancing and the woman is singing, Good Night, My Love. And something about the moment, their moment together now is ending. I look this up. The movie is called Stowaway. It's from the 1930s. Joyce brings out cupcakes and she asks what Buffy did for her birthday. And Buffy says, I got older. Joyce looks a little concerned but says, you look the same to me. And she lights a candle on one of the cupcakes and Joyce tells her to make a wish. And Buffy looks at the candle and says, I'll just let it burn. I thought the previous line, I got older, was one of the most heartbreaking I'd ever heard. And then when she says, I'll just let it burn, was so much sadder. And Joyce strokes Buffy's hair and Buffy leans into her mom and the song finishes. And that is the end of the episode. Joss commented that part of the meaning of innocence in the title is that Buffy is, in a sense, innocent. She hasn't lost anything of herself, even though she's gone through this painful maturing process. And he said that's why Joyce says she doesn't look different. He wanted to show that Buffy is still the same good person that she was before. Before we get to spoilers, a few more things from the DVD commentary that deal with the issue of what are we saying about sex in Buffy, which I talked about a bit starting in Ted. And here Whedon addresses that. He talks first about how he created the the movie Buffy the Vampire Slayer to deal with that blonde girl trope of her always being the victim, but also that it always seemed like the girl had sex and got punished for it by being killed. But in the series, they had to make Buffy younger so that she could be in high school longer. So they made her a sophomore, and he felt like they had to deal with sex, that first time having sex. This storyline is the horror version of, I slept with my boyfriend, and now he doesn't call me. Plus, he's killing people. And he said he really struggled with that because he didn't want to kill the girl who has sex. And yet the show does, in a way, punish her. And he said, the thing is, in horror, eventually you end up punishing characters for everything they do. The distinction he tried to make from the trope is that the consequence to Buffy here, the punishment, is emotional. But she grows from it. She learns from it. And she doesn't get axe murdered because she had sex. He also said that this episode was the most important one that they did in Buffy on two different levels. For the network, it was key because they just moved Buffy to a new night and time, uh, one that was uh, a better night for any show, and the network was worried not enough audience would respond or come to the show to justify that. But surprise and innocence did. To Joss and the other writers, he said it was most important because of the emotional resonance 
resonance and it showed how much the show had evolved, that it was a much harder edge story than they had ever done. He also commented on Angel changing. That was to avoid the Sam and Diane issue from the show Cheers, where once the couple finally gets together, they become boring. And so he said he came up with the idea of Angel turning evil, like almost the instant that they get together. Finally, he talked about surprise and innocence being the mission statement of the show. It is at once um, mythic. It's the hero's journey, Buffy losing Angel and having to fight him. And it is the personal story. I slept with someone and he doesn't call me anymore. I hope you will stay around for spoilers. If you aren't sticking around, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll come back next Monday for Phases, which focuses on Willow and Oz. And we are back for spoilers. I said something last time in the spoilers for Surprise that Spike doesn't want to end the world. He likes the world. And I meant that by the time we get to end of season two, that's where he says he likes the world. He doesn't want the world to end. In this episode, it's interesting because he does seem kind of gung-ho about the end of the world and irritated that Angel is delaying it. I read this as not necessarily that Spike wants to wipe out the whole world, but I think he would not mind wiping out quite a bit of humanity, including a lot of Sunnydale, because in the beginning of this episode, he is so despondent, and he feels like Sunnydale is just cursed for them. So I I think that is the source of his saying, come on, let's uh, start the end of the world. Angel's curse. So this idea of one moment of true happiness. Throughout Buffy, this will be interpreted as sex, mostly specifically sex with Buffy. In season three, when Angel comes back, this is what worries everybody, that Buffy and Angel will have sex again and Angel will lose his soul again. On Angel, the show, for a long time, the curse is interpreted by almost all the characters. I Actually, I think all of them as Angel having sex with anybody. But we do get an episode. I won't say too much because I, I don't know if all of you have seen all of Angel. But we do get an episode where that is finally clarified. That it isn't just sex. It is true happiness. Great love, true happiness, all of that together. In Buffy, it is a fantastic development because this will forever stand in Buffy's and Angel's way. They will struggle to deal with this, that there is always this fear. And I'm really going to jump ahead to season seven when we're at the finale. I have always been confused by Angel coming back. Not that he comes back, but that conversation they have where he seems to be saying, oh, well, maybe she'll eventually choose to be with him him. I don't get that idea because I feel like that was already settled and it even in Angel is referred to once or twice why they can't be together. So I find it very odd because there's no solution for that that we have seen in either show. We'll see when I get there. It could be that that it is justified in a way that I'm just not grasping as I'm remembering it. 
The emotional fallout of all of this for Buffy really resonates and informs her other relationships. In Nightmares, when I was talking about the spoilers, I said that I didn't find Buffy's abandonment fears all that believable when we get to season four's fear itself. And I mentioned how I really dislike the Parker Abrams story arc where Buffy, you know, falls for Parker and sleeps with him and then pines over him for what seems like forever. I never quite bought it, and now that I am doing this podcast and looking so closely, I realized that maybe I was being too literal with that. With Parker, that's the next time she sleeps with anybody. He is such a jerk, and it plays out in a very mundane way in that, yeah, he's the guy who sleeps with her and then just doesn't call her again. And I realize now that maybe the reason Buffy has so much trouble getting over that isn't about Parker, it's about Angel. And in fact, Spike taunts her with that comparison between Parker and Angel in the episode where he gets the ring that makes him invincible. Finally, I found it really interesting that Joss talked about how the audience was not wanting Willow to be with Oz. And he wrote that scene where Willow really falls for Oz and the audience then loves him too. He must have thought he needed to do that because otherwise phases where we find out Oz and Oz finds out that he is a werewolf wouldn't have the emotional impact it does. So on that note, thank you again for listening and I hope you will join me next Monday for phases. Music for this episode was composed and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC. Copyright 2020. 